You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, if you were going to uh, pick one word to summarize uh, all the problems that are being faced by the church in Corinth, uh, maybe the best word that you could grab to do that would be the word pride. Pride's probably going to be the best word to pick. Now, that may be confusing to you if you were here last week, because last week we looked at you and we said, hey, there's actually like a thousand words to describe what's going on in court. They had all kinds of problems. There were sexual sin issues. There were problems with spiritual gifts. There was divisions in the church. There was all these things going on. And while that's true that there were all of these separate issues, there was something humming in the background behind all of them that was driving and motivating them. And that was this idea of pride. Their arrogance, their boastfulness was in the driver's seat behind all of these sort of surface expressions of their sin problems. So uh, t- you get Take uh, chapter six, for example. You got the lawsuit problem. Everybody's suing everybody, right? So Paul looks at them and he's saying, hey, yes, everybody is suing everybody, but here's the, the issue behind it. You are suing each other because you can't imagine a world where you get slighted by somebody and you just let it go. You just can't even fathom a universe where that would take place. So you just bring another lawsuit and another lawsuit. And he's saying, that's not how it works. There's pride motivating that. And so he looks at him in verse seven and he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying, well, you, you, you won't do that because you're so arrogant that you just have to bring a suit and another suit and another suit. So pride is motivating it. Or you go to chapter 12 and, and now you get the issue of spiritual gifts. Does the church have an issue with spiritual gifts? You bet, but what's the thing behind it? Well, he tells us the issue with the spiritual gifts is you had some folks in the congregation who had the fancy spiritual gifts, right? The healing, the tongues, the prophecy, that sort of thing. And they were looking at the folks who had the, the not so sparkly spiritual gifts like mercy. And they were going, uh, these guys, they're not even the same league as me, right? They, they were sort of doing this one-upsmanship thing with how God enabled them to serve the church. And so what was behind their issue with spiritual gifts was actually pride or even the sexual sin issue within the church. Paul's going to say, no, you can chalk that up to arrogance as well. When you go to chapter five and we see the, uh, the guy who is sleeping with a stepmom, yeesh, right? When that thing's happening, Paul is saying, even behind that is an arrogant heart. He'll say in chapter five, verse two, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have been deeply sorrowful instead and removed the one who did this from you? Right? He's saying, you guys are so boastful of your your freedom in Christ that you can't even correct folks in your congregation. And what's happening is because you're unwilling to do that because of your pride, all of the sexual sin issue stuff is popping up within the flock and it's not okay. But the thing behind it is pride, right? Uh, The surface things are those things, but there's something deeper going on here. And so here we're at the beginning of the letter and we have another one of those sort of surface problems popping up. You see in verse 10, Paul says this, I appeal to you brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, right? So, so what's going on? There's divisions within the church. There's a lack of unity. There's, there's disagreements happening w- between members of the congregation. And Paul is gonna look at them and he's gonna say, hey, this divisive thing going on within you guys is actually pride as well. In chapter four, he's gonna take this exact issue up again and he's gonna call it arrogance in chapter four, right? And, and uh, this too is, is motivated by pride. And so what Paul is doing at the start of this letter uh, is he's gonna speak not just really to this 
presenting problem, but really he's gonna address all of the problems in this letter by correcting just one thing, by addressing just one thing. He's, he's gonna look at them and, and he's going to, to try to solve all of the, the surface expressions of their brokenness by addressing just one thing. If you'll understand just this one thing, it will change everything for you. It reminds me of City Slickers. You remember that movie from the early 90s? City Slickers, Billy Crystal uh, and, and his guys, New York City guys, middle-aged guys, uh, and their lives a mess. Just all the midlife crisis stuff and their marriage is falling apart. One guy gets a secretary pregnant, divorce is impending. It's just a total mess. And so they decide to gift uh, each other with a, a two-week trip where they do a cattle drive out in Montana because why not? And, uh, and so they go off for two weeks to do this, and while they're on this cattle drive, you know, these New York City boys doing this, they, uh, they meet this uh, sort of roughneck guy named Curly, right? He's sort of the cowboy guy, just, you know, John Wayne-ish, and, uh, and he's the guy helping them along in their cattle drive. He's just not having any of it. They're just complaining about all the little things in their little New York bubble, and he's just not having it. So these, there's this one scene where the horses together, Billy Crystal rides up next to Curly, and he's just moping about his, you know, uh, first world problems up in New York City. And, and Curly looks at him at some point and he's riding. He goes, you know what the meaning of life is? And he goes, this. Your finger? No. One thing. Just one thing. You figure that one thing out, everything else don't mean nothing. Now, the movie never tells us what the one thing actually is. So there is that. Uh, it doesn't really get there. But the Apostle Paul does get there for us. Paul is gonna look at us and he's gonna say, what, what is the one thing that if you knew this, it would sort out all the other things in your life? What is that one thing? Here's Paul's answer that he's gonna give us in chapter one. That one thing is this. It is a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus. If you could just see how this gospel really works, how God set this thing up. If you could see that, like in the core of who you are, there will be no more room for pride in you, which is the thing and the source of all your other problems. If you could just sort this one thing out, it will sort out everything downstream. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're looking at that. And here's what we're gonna see about that one thing, about the gospel this morning. Here's the movement of the text this morning. That God chose the savior, God chose the story, God chose the subjects, so God gets the glory. Yes, I know that rhymes. I discovered that this week. I was very excited about it, so I'm gonna say it again. God chose the savior. God chose the story. God chose the subjects, so God gets the glory. That's where we're going this morning. So if you have your Bible, get it out. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter one. We're gonna be looking at verse 11, thinking about God choosing the savior. He says this, Paul says this, to the church. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Okay, uh, what's going on here? Here is what's happening in the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is having a preacher off. That's what's happening. The, the, everybody in Corinth is sort of uh, 
pairing up and they are, they are grabbing their guy, their champion. They're throwing their hat in the ring with the person that they think is the most compelling, the best and brightest in the bunch. The, the one who they think is the, is the greatest of the preachers of the teachers. And they're saying, I'm with that guy. And it was producing in them this attitude that looked down on anybody else who wasn't in their same tribe, who wasn't in their ecosystem. That, that's what was happening right here. And so some guy was raising his hands going, hey, I'm with Paul. I'm with the guy who started this church. Paul, but you know, you know, the road to Damascus guy, I'm with Paul. Obvious first choice, that's my dude. If you're not with me, you're not with him. That's how it goes, right? And other people were like, Paul Schmall, right? Paul even said in his own writings that he's not a great eloquent speaker. Uh, he's just writes some good stuff. We're actually with Apollos. You know, Apollos, the guy who in Acts 18, the Bible actually says of him, he is an eloquent man, mighty in scriptures. Paul fumbles his words all the time. This, this guy's brilliant, so we follow Apollos. Other folks were raising their hand. They're going, dude, what are you guys talking about? What about the OG? What about the, 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 the apostle, right? The apostle Peter, the one uh, on this rock I will build my church. This guy actually walked with Jesus. This guy actually walked on water. He's like the man. We're going to side with Cephas, with Peter. And other folks were just were throwing their hand up, and they're going, no, we're with Christ. And you go, oh, that's... That seems better, except what are they doing? They're really just categorizing Jesus Christ along with all of these other guys. Like just, he's another name in the hat. He's another bright preacher out there. And so Paul's looking at all of that and he's going, no, that's dysfunctional. The point was everybody wanted to be, everybody wanted to be uh, associated with the coolest guy in the room. That's what they were doing. And, and it became a source of pride for them. But Paul is saying, Hey, guys, stop this. Your attention is, is focused on the wrong thing. You're, you're focusing on the wrong person. You're looking at the wrong person. So he says to them in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's saying, you're, you're treating me, you're treating us like we're the Savior. But we're not here to die for you. We're here to tell you about the one who did. That's our job. What you have done, Corinthians, is you've made a teacher your treasure. But that's not how this works. There is only one treasure, and it's not your teachers. It's the Christ. God has chosen the Savior, and it's not anybody on any stage. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's, that's who it is. He's chosen him. I remember uh, kind of being confronted with this when I went off to college. My, uh, my youth pastor gave me some advice as I uh, left for A&M. He said, Jimmy, uh, when you go there, you need to know the two most dangerous things you're going to face on campus are this. One, a guy with a guitar. And two, a guy holding a John Piper book. I thought, that's strange, because I love John Piper. The, the guy who told me this loves Piper. I've been really helped by John Piper's ministry. What, what is he saying? Is he saying... Don't listen to any preachers. Preachers are bad. That's not what he was saying. He, he, John Piper's great. What he was saying was, it's going to be tempting as you go off to make great teachers your treasure. And when you do that, you will start looking down on anybody who's not in that tribe, who's not in that clique. And that's not okay. That's a source of pride for you. Don't do that because the point of a good teacher is to always point you to the treasure, not to be your treasure. Do you see that? And so God has chosen the Savior. That's what he's saying. God has chosen the Savior, and it's not Paul, and it's not Peter, and it's not Apollos. It is Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And can I just pause here and just ex exhort us real quick on this issue? Um, some of us in the room uh, 
this issue right here is actually keeping some of us, either watching at home or in the room, from really plugging in deep to a local church, right? Because, because for some of us, we have our favorite preacher out there on a podcast and he's just killing the game every week. And so nobody else can compete. No local church can compete with that guy. And so you keep yourself out from under community, out from under good gospel leadership and a church family. And you just keep yourself at a distance because, because that's my guy. And if you're not in my tribe, I'm not, I'm not with you. And it's actually keeping you from the very thing God wants for you. It's becoming a source of pride for you. And can we just call that what that is? It is arrogance. It is pride. We need to repent of that. Paul's saying, don't, don't do like that. That, that's actually keeping you from all the things that God would have for you. If you want to kill pride in your life, you need to see that God chose the Savior. And it's n- nobody on that podcast. It's nobody up here. It's nobody even at your own church. It's just Jesus. But not only that, he didn't just choose the Savior. Paul's going to tell us he chose the story. Now look at this in verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, a.k.a., hey, I'm here to tell you about Jesus, not be your Jesus, right? And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, so what is he saying? Well, commentators are gonna tell us that Corinth was a, a destination city for traveling orators, and they would come around and they would charge you a fee and you would show up and then they would give you some fancy sort of rhetorical speeches on on how you could advance yourself socially. That was a very normal thing to happen in the city of Corinth. So when a Corinthian heard that a new message had come into town, they expected it to sort of fit into that box, to fit that model, that it would be somebody showing up with some wise, you know, rhetorical poetics, and we'd all sit around and go, good show, old boy, right? That's how it would feel to us. And so, and, and what Paul is saying is, hey, what we have to say, our message, it isn't like that. It isn't like what you're expecting. It's not gonna fit inside that box. It's about a man who is God hanging on a cross. And that's weird. And it's bizarre. And it's not clever. And there's no cool argument or, or fancy uh, wordplay that we're going to do with you. Because if I gave you some great philosophic reasonings to get you on the team, if that's what you were hearing, at the end of it, you would end up praising human words instead of God's works. And God will not have that. He wants the news to be as crazy as it is. He wants it. He designed it that way. He chose this story. I mean, think about this. God has intentionally kept the message of Jesus ridiculous to the world. It's ridiculous. Does it feel ridiculous? It should feel ridiculous. That's what the text is saying. This is craziness. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's folly to them. It's foolishness. In verse 22, he's going to say, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. That when they see it, they trip over it. They can't, they can't even get over it. When, that when the Gentiles see it, it's folly to them. One translator said that it may be more appropriate to, to translate that word folly as madness. It's literally lunacy. It's insanity to, to have Jesus, God in the flesh, dead on the cross. It just doesn't make sense. Now, why is it folly? Why is it such madness? Well, I, I think it's this, because it looks like nothing human beings love. It looks like nothing we value. What do we value? Well, we value the same thing that the Corinthian church valued, right? We value strength, and we value wisdom. We like that sort of thing. And then what is the gospel? The gospel has God 
dead on a cross? That doesn't look strong and it doesn't look wise. It looks foolish and it looks weak and it looks bizarre. And it's not something that we would have come up with. It feels so alien to us. You see that? The cross is, is just an alien notion. And let me just say this as we're going. This to me is actually one of the most compelling proofs of Christianity is how foreign it is to human rationale and reason. It just doesn't, it is so backward from how humans calculate value. It's so backward from how we would see and set up the world. It's, it's, it feels so, so far from it originating in a human mind, all right? This is not how humans think. We would never make up something like this. Can you imagine, just imagine, like human beings making up this story in order to compel people to, to come to faith. Imagine the board meeting, right, where they're sitting around, this guy hits the gavel, he's like, okay, uh, today on the docket, we're inventing a new religion, uh, so I'm just gonna start spitballing, and let's see what we got. Uh, uh, first idea, let's have, what if we had God uh, come down in the flesh and live as a man to save the world, all right? Thoughts on that? Crickets? Okay, I'm just, we're just going, guys. We're just gonna find some stuff out. Um, table that, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about his origin story. How did he show up here? How, how was he born? What, what did that look like? I need some ideas. What do you got? Sharon? Yes. Uh, okay, I, uh, I think he could be born in a faraway land uh, where no one knows his origin story. And, and he's born into a castle with, with kings and queens and princesses around him and, and doubloons and he drinks milk out of a golden chalice every day and, and then one day he's ushered into town to save his people from his sins. I like it, uh, very uh, sparkly. Um, counter offer, we could have him be born in a barn behind a motel by a 14-year-old pregnant Jewish girl. <laughs> Thoughts, anyone, yay, nay? Okay, these aren't my best ideas, folks. We're just gonna keep going. Uh, let's talk about the big boy issue. Let's talk about how does he do it? How does he save the world? Ideas, yes, yes. Bill, okay, uh, Rome. Let's have him do it through Rome, man. Rome's the superpower. We'll have him come up, have him sort of build up an army, right? He rises up through the ranks of power. Eventually there's a face-off with him and Caesar. Off with Caesar's head. He's in power. He's ruling the Roman Empire. That's how you do it. I like it, very brave heart, very gladiator. Um, again, option two, just a suggestion, we could have Rome kill him as an insurrectionist in the most humiliating way possible while his friends and family watch, and then as he expires on the cross, his followers could run away. No? Gosh, this is not my day. Um, but I haven't told you the best part. What if I told you at the end of it? He rose from the dead. Okay, now we're talking. And then he's installed in power? Not exactly. He rises from the dead, shows himself to a handful of people, mostly women, and then he's gonna go up into the clouds and uh, then he's gonna let the rest of the work be done by his fishermen followers. No one would come up with this. It's super weird. It's super unintuitive. It's a bad story. It kicks against everything we value and it kicks against everything that they valued, right? The Jews were waiting for a military Messiah. They were wanting somebody to roll into town, take Rome down and install the theocracy again. That's what they wanted and what they got was their Messiah crucified. That's an oxymoron if you're a Jew. It doesn't work, it doesn't make sense. 
The, the Greeks had a similar issue. They had a, it, their platonic philosophical way of thinking about the world had a huge separation between the transcendent God, the spiritual, and the material. So there was no way in their worldview where the transcendent, the spiritual, would interact with the material, much less the idea of God himself coming and suffering and dying, it just didn't make any sense. It didn't fit any of their schemas, none of their ways of thinking. It was absurd. It all just feels so wrong. And that's what makes it right. That's what makes it right. God chose a story that looks ridiculous to everyone in the world, but to those who are called, Paul says, to those who God opens their eyes to give them sight to see, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The reason the story of Jesus unfolded the way it did is so that when you put your trust in Jesus, it will not be because you saw human strength or wisdom on display. It will not be that. It will be because you saw the strength and the wisdom of Almighty God on display. That upside down, counterintuitive wisdom. That's why you will come. God chose this story so that you wouldn't boast in man. That's why he chose it this way. And that's important to Paul. Now here's the problem. You might hear that and you might actually be down with all that. You might be on, on that team. You might go, yes, that is the message. I agree, it's super upside down and that's the proof of this whole thing. It's Christ crucified, isn't it crazy? And I'm so glad I saw it. I'm so glad I figured it out. Just at every turn, us humans are just itching to get our way into the story. We just got to get us some praise somehow. And Paul knows this. So he's about to shut that thing down hard. Look what he does here. He, He tells us God didn't just choose the Savior so that you wouldn't boast in fancy preachers. And he didn't just choose the story so you wouldn't boast in fancy thinking. He chose the subjects, you, so you wouldn't boast in fancy Look at verse 26. He turns the focus on them. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's quite the pick-me-up text right there, isn't it? Imagine reading that. You're like, what letter is this? He's going, hey, just in case you thought that message might be foolish, but I sure not, right? He's going, hey, man, look around, guys you aren't exactly starting quarterbacks around here, right? This is a, it's a rough crowd. He looks at him and he goes, hey, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He, you guys, you know this about yourselves, right? You're, you're not the sharpest knives in the place where they keep the knives, right? You're not, you're not, he says, not many of you are 
uh, not many of you are powerful, right? He's, he's talking about having social capital. He, he's saying, you're not high up in the ranks, guys. You didn't, you're not bringing much to the table. You don't have much to play with. You don't know the right people. You're not in places of leadership. You're not powerful people. Not many of you, of you were of noble birth. I love this. That word noble birth is the word uh, eugenes in the Greek. It's two words put together, you, which means good, and genes, which is where we get our English word genes from. He looks at him and goes, you just don't have good genes. Bunch of mouth breathers out there, right? Now, of course, we know he, they didn't know about genetics. That's not exactly what they had in mind, but he did have this in mind. He was talking about rank, and he was talking about the, the nobility of your birth. And what he's saying is, hey, you didn't come from good stock. That's, your family tree is not pretty, y'all. And this was true. The Corinthian population started with folks kind of at the bottom of the social food chain. According to the historian uh, Strabo, when uh, Corinth was repopulated by Rome in AD 44, uh, the, the way they repopulated it is they sent uh, mostly their uh, freed slaves, freedmen. So, so um, freed slaves released uh, from their slavery to populate the city. And they did that in, in order to sort of slough them off to potentially get rid of some troublemakers. That's why they did it. So, so uh, Rome repopulates Corinth with these freedmen. And, and so what you have is a whole city now that gets started with a bunch of poor folks with no education, no status, no, no like amazing family tree, no generational wealth, dropped in the middle of a city perfectly situated to better one's situation if you'd only get about it. And so they, the Corinthian church is getting about that work. They're starting to be on the come up, right? That's what they're working on. And Paul's saying, hey, slow down before you do that. Let's just be real for a second. None of y'all are fancy. It's just not. I just need you to remember where you came from. You, you're, not, you're not an educated bunch. You're not a, a wise bunch. You're not a powerful bunch of people. But you are God's bunch. You are that. And, and he looks at him and he says, and there's a reason for that. There, there's a reason that you're not impressive and you belong to God. It's not a coincidence that that happened. This is something God has chosen to do. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Do you ever wonder why it is that the message of Jesus dying for sinners is just so easy for kids to get. Do you know uh, 63% of conversions to Christianity take place between the ages of four and 14? Well, most people are getting saved, becoming Christians when they're kids. Why is that? Why is it? Their brains aren't even fully developed. What, do you ever wonder why in developing nations, the gospel tends to explode among the poorest in the community? That when you take the gospel to a, to a, a slum in India where the Dalits are, the untouchables are, all of a sudden the gospel just takes incredible root and spreads like wildfire. You ever wonder why it happens like that? Do you ever wonder why in the most educated sectors of our country, like the Northeast or in university campuses, Christian conversions and church planning is like almost non-existent? It almost just doesn't happen. It's just so dead there. Do, do you ever wonder why in almost all of the most advanced European nations in the world, all those beautiful cathedrals 
you see in all the pictures, every Sunday are basically empty. Do you ever, do you ever wonder why, why is it that way? Why is it like that? Paul's saying there's something about having lots of human wisdom and strength and power and influence and wealth that works against your ability to humble yourself and embrace Jesus. Because when you have all that and then you look at yourself, you go, I don't really need much. And the one thing you need to be a Christian, we say it all the time here, is need. You need only to have nothing. And when you think you have everything, you're not gonna take him. And what this text is saying is God designed it that way so that those with the smarts, those with the capacities, those who sort of rest on their intellectual laurels are put to shame when folks like us trust in Jesus. He has chosen a family of freaks and failures. Just look around. (laughs) So that as we somehow, fumbling forward successfully in the end, storm the gates of hell for King Jesus and see God's kingdom come on earth here as it is in heaven, as we see that take place, like us seeing that take place, through our labors for Jesus, the whole world will know, well, it ain't because of that girl. It ain't because of that guy. They'll only be able to say, look what God did, man. Because I've seen those people at Stonegate. They're a mess. But God still seems to be doing something. That's the point. That's what he's doing here. The gospel will not let you be the hero of your story. That's why I love Frozen 1 and hate Frozen 2. <laughs> frozen 1, the punchline of it, an act of sacrificial love will thaw a frozen heart. It's amazing. The punchline of Frozen 2, I'm my own hero. Right? That's what Elsa sings in a little cave where there's all these videos of her just watching her. She starts singing a song to herself and she sings, you are the one you've been waiting for all of your life. She's singing to her. She's going, I realize what I've been missing. I've been needing a little bit more me. That's what I've been lacking in my life. Just some Elsa. Really, Disney? That's what you're going to give us? God designed your salvation to kill that way of thinking. You're not the one you've been waiting for all your life. Trust me. It's Jesus alone. You're not that fancy. You're not that impressive. Receive it. It's okay. It's what the Bible says. Now, let me just, I want to take a second to just help apply this and show you how this works in your life. Because chances are, everybody can get down with, the, with what I'm saying. Nobody's walking around going, I'm the hero. I'm so awesome. But nobody talks like that. But, some, but in the ways we act, we can demonstrate that somewhere deep down, we think we're entitled. We think God owes us. We think people owe us. Let, let me give you some examples. If you're super easily offended, you might just not be seeing yourself right. If just everything gets under your skin, if you can't just let anything go by you without going, hey, that's not right. Hey, don't say that about it. Hey, stop it. That's not how it should be. That's a sign that you think too much of you. 
That's what that is telling you. I think I'm owed something. And for you to disgrace me in that way, that's, that's offensive. But if you realize, I'm kind of at the bottom of the barrel, y'all. Then anything anybody says about you, you're like, yeah, it's kind of true. I don't know, right? I'm not as easily offendable if I can get down with this. God chose what is weak. God chose what is clumsy. God chose what is foolish. How about this? If you, if you just are unable to apologize, you just can't own anything. You just can't look at another person and go, dude, I am sorry. I wronged you, I, I, and I, should, I repent. You know what that means? It means you still think you have a reputation to protect. It means if I say this, if I admit this, gosh, that's going to damage this thing I got going, this image of me I got going. I have to concede that I'm not this high thing that I am, and I know I'm this high thing I am. But what the text is saying is, you're not. Just settle that today. God chose what is weak in the world, foolish in the world, to shame the wise. So you don't have to keep up appearances because you got nothing to appear, right? It's, you can own your failures because the gospel has already said that about you. You're not the impressive one in the story, y'all. Jesus is the impressive one. So yeah, I'm sorry. That, that is exactly like how I would act apart from the grace of God. And I'm sorry for that. If not for the grace of God, that's how I always am. Would you forgive me? That's how a Christian talks. That's how a Christian acts. Now on the other side of things, this isn't meant to just beat you down. This can actually be a huge encouragement to you. Because some of you rolled into church today and you're just, you're not feeling very shiny. You're, you're looking at your history. You're looking at your life right now and you're going, man, I, I've got, I'm a mess. And actually, it, it makes me feel a little weird to even run with Christians sometimes because they look so polished and I'm just not that way. I just, it's not, you kind of wish that you had a little bit more clout to bring to the table with God, right? A little bit more to show off to him. And what this text is telling you, what God is telling you this morning is don't despise your story. God chose you so he could do something beautiful with you. He wants to do something beautiful with you so that when he does something beautiful with you, you will not boast in you. That's why he chose you. So you sell this today. God, God chose me and I might not be impressive, but that's okay. That's okay because God is doing something good in my life and it's making him look great. God chose the savior. God chose the story. God chose the subjects. So what? So God gets the glory. Look at verse 30. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is that one thing? What's the one thing that, if you, if you could just sort this out, all, everything downstream in your life would get sorted out too. What is that one thing that Paul's giving us to see and correct our vision about? It's this, he wants us to learn to boast only in the Lord. That there's no point in the gospel story where I get to point at me. I always only point at him. That's the one thing. That I don't point at my teachers and, and rally around them and go, they're my savior. There's one savior, it's Jesus, I point at him. That, that I'm not boasting in human reason or wisdom or some clever story. It's not about that. It is about this, this crazy news that God would humble himself to die for sinners. 
point to that. It changed me. It's God who did it. It's not human wisdom. It's crazy until he opens your eyes. Now, I'm not even pointing to me at the end of the day like, man, I was just, I don't know, I was just smarter than my neighbor. I figured it out. I don't know what to tell you, right? He's saying, no, it's not even like that. God chose you. God grabbed you, and you weren't a specimen. I'm, I'm with you, Lord, because you did it. I point to you and you only. You are the Lord. I am not. You are the Savior. I am not. It's your story. It's not my story. I'm your subject. I did not get on your team by my brilliance. When you live like that, pride goes away. Pride dies at the foot of the cross. You can't boast in you. You can't, you can't have a spirit of one-upsmanship when you know that you, you, there's nothing impressive about you. It's only the work of the Lord in your life. You can't brag like that. You're not going to go around suing everybody and doing like you're not. You're not going to. You're not going to live like that. You're not going to have thin skin anymore. You're going to be a, a whole happy person because you've settled the issue. It's all God, not me. It'll change your life, and that's what Paul's doing at the beginning of this letter, and he's meaning for it to carry through all the chapters that will follow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word of the cross. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. The world does not get it. And none of us got it until you opened our eyes. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we're saying we boast only in Jesus today. Our boast is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in us not in what we've done, not in what we've accomplished, not in what we own, not in our mind, not in our wit, not in our strength, not in our morality, not in our track record. We boast only in Jesus. I hope that this frees some people today, God. Would you free some people so that when we sing this next song even, we would be able to boast only in Jesus. Our hearts would just delight in the fact that God did it all for us. That's the point of the gospel. No religion in the world, no worldview in the world says this. The credit always comes back to man, but not with the gospel. It always goes to you. So we rejoice in our Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. We boast in you. There is no other. Our soul is satisfied in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.